as Paul and I were uh, trying to figure out um, planning this service and the upcoming services, it seemed to us wrong to go with what we had already planned. Um, we've kind of already had already had the year mapped out. This, as we were talking, just felt like kind of a new start. Things are just so crazy. And when things feel crazy, for me anyway, I just go back to Jesus. Like, that's where you go. And so for the next 12 weeks or so, we're just going to talk about Jesus. We're going to read some passages about the life of Jesus, the things he had to say, the things he did out of the Gospel of Luke, beginning with Luke chapter 4 today. Uh, to reacquaint ourselves with Jesus um, is, I think, in some ways to reacquaint ourselves with love. That's what struck me as I have begun reading again <laughs> for the however many <laughs> time it is, the life of Jesus. I think this is one of the great things about, about staying rooted in your church and in your church tradition. It allows us to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the great mystery of life and scripture and God. Um, but as I was, as I was reacquainting, as I've been reacquainting myself with Jesus, the word that kept on coming back to us is this word love. And as cheesy as it sounds, how love lights us up. Uh, I, uh, Esri, is she still in this room? Or is she long gone? Well, nobody knows where she is. That is par for the course. That is Esri. Uh, Esri and I both happen to be fighters. And so what we do is we, we fight. She gets big emotions and intense, and she comes at me, and I get intense and come at her, and we do this thing. Um, I am bigger than her, which means I win. That's how life is, isn't it? But as I've been acquainting myself with Jesus, I've come to realize that for Jesus, bigger doesn't win. He always seems to slide smaller and more merciful I tried a new tactic with Esri this week that seemed to be very successful. We were going at each other. I was bigger, so I won. I put her in her bed, and I left the room, slammed the door. I was quite angry. She was quite angry. Everyone was quite angry, and, uh, except for Sissy and Mommy, who had left. <laughs> and I was just stewing over this thing that, like, no matter what, we just kind of keep on doing this. And so I decided a new tactic so I opened the door, and I went in, and I picked her up, and she screamed at me, just bloody murder, kicked me as hard as a three-year-old can kick me, and I held her in my arms as tight as I could, and I said, I love you, and I just kept saying it over and over and over again, and through screaming tears, she said, I love you too, <laughs> and I just kept saying it and saying it and saying it until she melted. And eventually, she did. And then we could have a conversation about not kicking people and screaming. <laughs> but we couldn't get it to anything until we first got to love. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in some ways to us. Jesus really seems to believe that love will save us if we can learn how to grab a hold of it. But unfortunately, that also begins with pain, Jesus' uh, ministry begins with this beautiful moment of baptism. Just this beautiful scene where John sees Jesus come into this water and he says, no, you're holy, I should be baptized by you. What are you doing here? 
And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm putting myself under you and your authority. And John baptizes him, and he comes up out of the water, and the Spirit descends upon him, and there's this great, beautiful moment, and then the Spirit picks Jesus up out of that water and just drags him, brings him, and drops him off in the desert, in the wilderness, where he is tempted by the devil. This is the text we'll be looking at today. If you brought a Bible, you can find it. If you're just a listener, you can just listen. I'm going to read this whole text, and then we'll kind of go back into it. But it begins with Luke chapter, one, or chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. And he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and said to them, said to him, to you I will give all this authority, all their glory, if you, it's been, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him alone. And he took him to Jerusalem, And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. Because it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you stub your toe. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, that is a weird story. Some of you have been in church so long, you've forgotten how weird the Bible is. For instance, 40 days is a long time to be hungry. How many of you have already thought about extra cheese on your burrito already? We've been fasting for two hours. You've probably had a cup of coffee or two, and yet still, we are thinking about lunch already. Jesus is hungry For 40 days, imagine that, for just a second. Put yourself in that kind of moment of self-denial and then stretch it out. (laughs) And my first question, as uh, as a person whose section, middle section is fully Americanized, right? All burgers and fries all the time, right? I am wondering, why? Why would Jesus deny himself like this? What possible purpose could this, could this bear out? Why is this happening? And I think this is my hypothesis, and I want to drag us through it and kind of show you why I believe this, but I believe that it is God bringing Jesus to the moment where he has finally let go of all of the passions that are there inside of him that will distract him from being who he truly is in God. 
You remember how important it is that Jesus does the will of the Father. How often did he say, they're not my words, they're God's words. They're not my will, it's God's will. It's not my way, it's God's way. It was so important for Jesus that he attached his own being to the being of God. That all the other things were kind of stripped and washed away so that that true sense of who he was, that image of God, because you remember that Jesus is also fully human, just like you and just like me. And we see in him something that we all kind of go through. These temptations take place after these 40 days of fasting. And you'll remember that 40 is a number that often is attached to transition. You might think of the big transition of Noah in the ark for 40 days. That was a big one. But you also have things like Moses on the mountain receiving the word of God so that he can bring it to the people. You might remember the, the people who are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years so that they could let go of the, the cultural trappings, the religion and politics and way of being Egyptian, which is all they had known for 400 years. And God gives them that 40 years of wandering so they begin, can begin to learn his ways and forget their own ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God says over and over again. And so Jesus is experiencing something we all experience. In fact, these temptations are listed. There's three. But it says to us that for 40 days the devil tempted him. That every temptation was given him. But we're only given three and, and let it never be said that I can't alliterate, so this is my version of the three, three temptations. Provision, power, popularity. You might call them something else, but this is kind of how I would summarize them in a nutshell of what this experience is that Jesus is, is facing. And I love how mundane these temptations are. We've all been worried about the next paycheck, the next bill, maybe the next meal, We've all had experiences of wanting to control somebody or something and being very toxic about it because it's not going very well. Can I get a witness, church? Y'all innocent out there? How many of us have worried about what other people think of us and what will become of us and why no one's listening to us? I mean, these are things we have all experienced and you will continue to experience through the rest of your life. And Jesus faces these things down. It's important to recognize that sin is not the equivalent of morality. Sin is not morals. Like these are not like polar opposite. No, sin is far larger than that. Sin is the word we use to describe when we have these passionate feelings, expressions, and thoughts, and we take those things and we let it become toxic, harming us and everyone around us. And most importantly, how these things delude us into thinking we don't have them. How many times, walk with me, church, I need you to kind of, I need to not be the only one who's guilty of this this morning, but how many times have you been sitting around with a friend or a spouse and you start talking trash about somebody you know? Come on. Yeah. You start talking trash about somebody you know, and you say, man, can you believe so-and-so and what they're doing, and blah, 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 and the person's like, yeah, I can't believe so-and-so and what they're doing. And then you say something like, and they don't even know they're doing it. You ever say that? You ever think that? How can they not, be, how can they not see this thing that is right in front of them? How can they not see this error? How can they not see this, this misconception about who? How can they not see themselves? Guess what? Somebody says that about you. 
and me. Because we're all delusional. If you realized you were wrong, you'd probably change it. But we don't. (laughs) So we keep doing things over and over again. And so frequently, what we do when we are confronted with the reality of who we are is it's so painful, we can't even engage it. So we deny it. And Jesus is walking through this, and he is facing the full weight and gambit of what it is to be human and to experience experience how deeply we want what we want and how far we are willing to go. And the first thing that Jesus faces is that provision, the desire for his own basic needs. And this is a very strange piece of temptation for me because is it wrong for Jesus to turn the stone into bread? Is it wrong? I mean, he doesn't have a problem with loaves and fishes twice. There it is. Boys listening, see? That's why we let children in church. They know. Agree with the preacher. This is how... I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it's a very strange sort of thing. And yet, and yet it, it, it is described as a temptation. In fact, it gets even weirder because you'll notice when does the temptation happen? When does the devil bring these three to him? After the fast is over. Jesus has completed his fast. When they were ended, he was, and you got to love the understatement of the Bible. After 40 days, what was he? He was hungry. That's how Jesus felt. No, after 40 days of not eating, your Bible has cannibalized every excess piece of fat and muscle. Jesus is not hungry. He is on death's doorstep. He will starve if he does not find food soon. That is a biological fact. And after he has completed the test, then Satan shows up and says, you've got power, don't you? Eat that food or you will die. You have a mission to complete. There is something that you have to do that no one else can do. And this is how it's going to be done through you, through your power, through your ability. Turn that into bread. You can do it. You can do it. But Jesus doesn't seem to want to go that way. What's interesting to me just about this as a subpoint, just a side thing, is isn't that kind of how temptation works? Haven't you had, you like, you made it all the way through. It was a rough day. Oh, man, it was so hard. And you finally got through it all, and you're driving home, and you hit a traffic jam, and you lose it. Or you get home, and the kids are loud, and you lose it. Isn't that when we lose it? We've done so well for so long, and we think the test is over. But no, the test has just begun. The test has just begun. And what I love about this text right here and those three little, well, four, when they were ended, those four little words, is it tells me that Jesus knows my experience. That that moment of breaking, Jesus has been there. That he has actually weathered that and that if I tie myself to him, there can come a day when I don't break, but I go further because I've trained myself in knowing him. Now, why does Jesus not turn that 
rock into bread. He doesn't turn that rock into bread because he has a deeper sense of how the world will actually be completed, made whole, restored, and made right. And it won't be through his own effort. It won't be through his machinations. It won't be through him. It won't be through him. It will be through God. And God will, of course, use him as we know, just as God uses you as you know. But it all flows from that one source. And Jesus himself testifies to his need for that source. He is showing us that when he doesn't get his way, he doesn't freak out. We do. A few months ago, there was not a square to spare anywhere. And one day before, if you walked into Meyer and you saw no toilet paper, you'd shrug and walk away. The next day, there were cold bodies in the street over a six-pack of Charmin. Like, I want to laugh about it because it's so ridiculous, but I'm talking about really dead people. Like, how does that happen? How do we switch from one thing to the other so quickly because our temptation to fear that there is not enough is so strong? That it will grip us and kill us. Grip us and lead us to kill others. And that this is a universal and constant temptation. It is the wars. It is the poverty. It is all that we see across the world right now. The same thing is sitting at every single person's doorstep. There's not enough. i got to protect what I've got. And Jesus is saying right here. He is saying right here that when his needs aren't met, he will not freak out. Then when he doesn't get what he wants, he's still satisfied. When he is ticked off, he doesn't bring it to everyone's doorstep. When he is asked, he says, I don't live like that. I don't live on bread. I don't live on my basic needs. I don't live on my fears. I live on God. And that will sound incredibly foolish to a lot of people. But for some of us, it's life itself. The next thing Jesus faces is the temptation to power, to control, to have his own way, and that exert his force. Here the devil gives a glimpse to him of what it is like to be rich and famous. And I don't know what the rich and famous exactly looked like in those days. We have some, some things. But whatever it was that he showed Jesus, it was the perfection of glory that it was in his day. He gives Jesus a glimpse of everything he could want in terms of power and privilege. And if you've ever wanted a bigger house, a bigger bank account, a corner office a bigger church, more influence. If you've ever wanted any of those things, you know exactly what Jesus is experiencing. If you've ever worried about an upcoming election, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about because we go through the same temptation every time, even though we know we're going to do it another two years, another four years, and another six years. And yet, here it is. We are very tied into this experience The Bible calls the world powers and principalities. Satan says in this text, I control all of this stuff and I can give it to you. And what a temptation that has to be for Jesus. If you think he wasn't tempted, you don't believe that Jesus was human. 
Because if I showed you all of the glory and power and mansions and money, all of the ability to say what you want and have it be done by whoever, that no one argues with you anymore and everyone agrees with you because you have the power to enforce your will. If you tell me that's not tempting, you're a liar. Because that's incredibly tempting. In fact, what's even more tempting is that Satan is offering all of that to Jesus without the cross. He says, you want to make the world a better place? You want justice from sea to shining sea? I'll give it to you. I'll give you all the armies. I'll give you all the money. I'll give you all the power. It's yours. Just worship me. Do it my way. And Jesus says no. And we do not take enough We do not take enough time to consider what it means for Jesus to deny power and to say that is not the way of God. In fact, what does Jesus answer him? He says, you shall worship the Lord. It's interesting to me that he uses the word worship, not praise, not love, worship. Do you know what the word worship means? It means kneeling. Literally, that word means you get on your knees before God. You go down. For Jesus To reach the highest heights, he must go to the deepest depths. For Jesus to come into the world and to succeed is not to go to the top, but it's to go to the bottom. It's to go to the sinner. It's to go to the poor. It's to go to the people that no one else cares about, the people that no one else is worried about. The 1%, the one sheep that's lost is the one that Jesus comes looking for. Do we have that heart for the one that's lost? Or are we more interested in circling our wagons and being safe and secure and in control and right? Jesus is presenting something so powerful here. He is showing us the very way of God, and it begins by kneeling. It begins by going down, not going up. By loving, not by controlling. This Is how Jesus succeeds over Satan in this situation. The next one is similar to it. Popularity, you could call it position. We understand this. We all fall into this. We all wonder, what will people think of me? Uh, I have a a great fear, and perhaps you have this too, of of being made to look foolish. Does anybody else hate looking foolish? You're sitting around, you're talking, and you say something, and you think it's right, and somebody says, no, that's not right. And immediately I think, oh, you idiot. You know, what does everybody think of me? So foolish. We think about all of this opportunity to, to be a star, that Jesus is he's, he's able to, to heal and to do all of these different things. He should have a, a tremendous following at his death, shouldn't he? And yet he only has a few. He has hundreds, some, you know, maybe more, not a ton. Jesus rejects the obvious opportunities to demonstrate his bigness, his rightness. The, uh, the, the, Pharisee, the, the Pharisees are going to invite him to do this, and he's going to resist it all throughout his ministry. But Satan begins and says, hey, jump off. Prove to us that you are right. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in playing that game. He's not interested in playing the game with Satan, and he's not interested in playing the game with everyone else. It's got to have been maddening for Jesus. Maddening for Jesus to to have walked the earth and spoke, 
knowing he was the son of God, and have people say, nah, I don't believe you. <laughs> Dude, I just, I just healed that guy. What do you mean you don't believe me? I just made all this food. What do you see? You don't believe? Jesus is talking like, ah, that's your opinion. <laughs> they walk away. It would have to be so incredibly frustrating for Jesus, and yet he weathers that. He is comfortable with that. He is able to live with that. He is able to offer grace for that. It's amazing. Jesus says at one point that he could bring 12 legions of angels to his side to defend him. That is approximately 72,000 angels, which is a lot of angels. If I could call them to my side, I'd use them. But Jesus does not. He does not stoop to that, right? He brings it close And he constantly is offering the free gift of grace. Always offering it. Always offering. Not leaping from temples, right? But doing doing that. The temptation to be right here, to, to have his position solidified, to show everyone else. Boy, that would have been hard. But Jesus allows that to go too. He's allowing, in other words, in each and every situation here, For God to have full and total control. For him to move with faithfulness. And you notice he's always quoting scripture. For him to move with faithfulness according to the word of God. To walk within the will of God. To bring about the message of God. And that message of God over and over and over again is this message of love. This message where he picks us up while we kick and scream and fight. Some of us are kicking and screaming and fighting and still screaming, I love you, God, but we're not, we're not willing to give up and to rest. There's a very ominous line. I was hoping to leave with something hopeful, but, you know, it is what it is. There's a very ominous line at the end of this text. I don't know if you caught it or not. Let's see if I can get high enough. There it is, the last line. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him forever. Oh. Oh, man. I really didn't like this. I never noticed it exactly before, but I decided I was going to erase this out of my Bible. So if you've got a pen, just... It doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. That the temptations that Jesus is facing here, sometimes we think like Jesus just sort of like flitted through life. Like he maybe even like he faced the devil and like that was it. Now it's all okay. We're We're just going through. But that's not the way it was. Jesus faced... Those temptations over and over again. Every time a a Pharisee got in his face, every time things got too dark, every time maybe he and his disciples were hungry. Man, if I could make five guys show up on command, I would abuse that privilege. Jesus was human like you and I. He walked like you and I. He experienced like you and I. He was tempted like you and I. And that continued through his life like you and I. And yet he was able by rooting himself and the life of God, and the words of Scripture, and his, his community around him. He was able to walk as we are supposed to walk, to be that example for us so that when we face that temptation at the end of the day, after those long, long hours of doing it over and over again right, and even in those moments when we break and we're grounded and we feel far from God, God is in the room. We sang that word. We sang that uh, song. 
that you're there, that God is there. Before, before we get there, God is there. And I love that message. That's the message that I get out of this temptation experience of Jesus, that he walks like we walk, but that there is great hope, great love, great joy, great completeness that is found in a God who walks with us even when we mess it all up, who walks with us even in the darkest times, who walks with us because he knows what it's like to be us, that we are not alone on this great journey that God is with us. Let's stand as we sing this great song.